got someone coming. It's okay. Time is going to start from here. I think it might also be a, uh, I'm not sure what channel it is, but it might be a battery thing if this has started going on and off. Yeah. Well, I, I, do you know what channel this one's supposed to be on? This is, this is a mic 3, and one of them has got mic 3 on. Am I okay to um, start or introduce one second? Yeah, yeah. Just, just while we're waiting for some microphones to be uh, sorted, um, just a piece of housekeeping. If there's a Michael and Denise Mitchell here, if you could make yourself known to Father John at the front, he's just got a message for you. You can talk amongst yourselves for one more minute. <laughs> something of the pantomime to it in the sense that none of us, apart from Ethna, are quite as we appear. I am not Gerard Laughlin, um, and indeed Timothy Ratcliffe is not Elizabeth Johnson. However, we are particularly grateful to Timothy for being willing to stand in and do an extra session for us this morning in place of Elizabeth Johnson, who um, for very good reasons was unable to be here. So Timothy, thank you on all of our behalves. There are two people on this panel this morning who I admire immensely, and I'm sure I'm not the only person in the room who would feel that way. We have, we have two of the finest theological minds in Britain and Ireland, but also two people who are utterly committed to the transforming practice of the church in society in really fascinating and important ways. I'm going to introduce our first speaker first, Sister Dr. Ethna Regan from the Marta Day Institute in Dublin, and she's going to speak to us first, and then I will introduce Timothy when he speaks afterwards. Ethna is a theologian and an ethicist in Dublin, but she has also worked as an academic in Trinidad in the West Indies and in Samoa in the Pacific Islands. She's someone with a profound commitment to learning which relates to real life and works with a range of human rights organisations in Ireland and abroad. She works on theologies of human rights, Catholic social thought, the works of Karl Rahner, and theological anthropology. 
And she's also a member of an innovative centre for conflict resolution um, in, at Dublin City University. And so, with great pleasure, we welcome Ethna to help us think about how we put our house in order. Good morning, everybody. And thank you for the invitation to speak at the conference. I have to say that I found the topic rather daunting, putting our house in order. How does one address the ordering of a household that is as, as historically complex, as geographically scattered, and as culturally and theologically diverse as the Catholic Church? Philosophy, history, theology, psychology and sociology are but some of the disciplines whose expertise could illumine this difficult and contested topic. Where do I even begin? There is a tension between those who advocate for the primacy of spiritual reform in putting the house in order and those who advocate for the primacy of structural reform. Both, I think, are essential. This brief paper will draw from a biblical text, a theological question, two documents of Catholic social teaching and an, act, an aspect of canon law to offer some suggestions about putting our house in order, mindful of the enormity of the agenda. The biblical text. What does scripture say to us of housekeeping and of putting and ordering households? Luke 15, 8-10 offers us a scriptural starting point. A parable of a woman and a lost coin. The parable of the good housekeeper that is paired with the parable of the good shepherd, sharing similar structure and vocabulary. The parable of the good shepherd is woven into our pastoral and theological reflection on Christ and on leadership and membership in the church. We have, as Professor Miriam marked earlier, had much of shepherds and flocks over history. However, the former, the good housekeeper, described by one commentator as a quaint parable, perhaps because of its realism and domesticity, remains at the fringes of our theological and ecclesial imagination. The momentum of the parable is that of knowing something is lost, lighting a lamp, sweeping the house, searching diligently, perhaps even tearing the house apart, and then rejoicing with others, when the lost is found. The woman alone in the parables of lostness is described as seeking carefully or thoroughly, a careful search with broom and lamp to find the lost coin. The Jewish New Testament scholar Amy Jill Levine says, if the shepherd of Luke 15, 3-7 is understood as God, so should this woman be. Elizabeth Johnson cites Augustine who began a sermon on this parable with Holy Divinity has lost her money and it is us. The parable, like all parables, teaches something about God in this and sorry, teaches something about God and something about the command or imperative that issues from knowing God in this particular way. 
God is the woman who seeks diligently for the lost. And the mode of Jesus' telling of this parable interrogates the listeners. And what of this woman? And what of this kind of God? Augustine reflects on this parable in the context of his discussion of memory in chapter 10 of the Confessions. He asks, how could the woman have found the coin unless she knew she had lost it? If she and we had completely forgotten something, we should not be able to look for what is lost. The woman must have retained, Augustine says, some image of the coin in her memory. Augustine believed he could collect the lost memories of a not entirely forgotten God and gather them again from their old layers. Memory is the place where God abides and from the depths of memory, God can show us a way out of forgetfulness. Luke's parable is a beautiful analogy of God's careful searching for and extravagant joy at finding the lost. Augustine takes this Lucan parable in a more platonic direction, but he enables us to see in this good housekeeper both God and ourselves as the searcher. I'm just tentatively tentatively suggesting here that this parable of the good housekeeper has potential for reflection as the church searches for something lost, particularly after the crisis of recent years and endeavours to put our house in order through that search. I am not referring here to a lost Christian culture or the loss of a politically strong church, which Professor Hauerwas referred to, but the loss of something of the Imago Dei in our structures and systems. The parable of God as the good housekeeper reminds us that the finding of what is lost, the recalling to memory of what has been forgotten, and the ordering of the household is primarily God's work. We can bring this quaint parable to bear on the question of ordering of the church, not simply to the renewal of structures, but also, and perhaps even primarily, to the recovery of memory of what we are intended to be as church. In that sense, the ordering of the house is a deeply spiritual and profoundly theological task. A note on ethics and ecclesiology. There is an ecclesial dimension in, there is an ethical dimension in ecclesiology and there is an ecclesial dimension in ethics, but too often they are pursued as separate disciplines of theology. There is, I think, a real need now, at this moment in the church, to mine the theological tradition from the patristic texts to contemporary voices, to develop an ethics of church an approach that does not dissolve the tension between the Harawasian position of the church being an ethic and that of the church having an ethic, which enables moral proclamation on ethical issues. The Catholic ethical tradition is rich and resourceful, and this has resulted in moral proclamation on many topics of personal and political life. But there is also a continuum of an ethic, a continuum from more implicit to more explicit in the work of the great Catholic ecclesiologists. And there is also a continuum of ethical perspectives in the models of church in the conciliar documents of the 1960s. Yet the relationship between ethics and ecclesiology 
specifically between the character of the church itself and its capacity for moral proclamation, is rarely tackled directly. A tremendous amount of work has been undertaken in recent years on codes of practice within the church. The church in Ireland, for example, has produced exemplary child protection guidelines and aims to lead in best practice safeguarding children. This has been extremely important work, but that does not mean that the church has begun to look at itself and its own ethic of being church. There is a lacuna of credibility and a pattern is emerging, and this is just my own observation, whereby praxis fills that lacuna of credibility. So that the praxis of individual Catholics whose lives are recognized as authentically Christian and the praxis of groups, for example, the St. Vincent de Paul Society, Trocra, etc., The danger is that this becomes an ethic of exception. These individuals and groups are viewed as an exception to the ethic of the institutional church rather than an exemplar of the ethics of the institutional church. One rare document that does specifically address the relationship between the character of the church itself and its capacity to contribute to discussions related to justice, peace, and other matters of the common good is a synodal document of 1971, Justice in the World, and I know you're all very familiar with that. Donald Dore describes it as one of the most significant statements on social justice ever issued by Rome. The 40th anniversary of this document was largely overlooked by the Church. There is no reference whatsoever to this in the compendium of the social doctrine of the Church. The compendium draws, of course, primarily from papal and encyclicals, papal documents and conciliar documents. But there are references from the Pontifical Council for Social Communications, for example, nothing against them, from the CDF, nothing against them either. But the exclusion of references to this significant document is, in fact, troubling. There is an enduring relevance to justice in the world with its clarity and realism, its emphasis on structural injustice, its inclusion of environmental justice, even back in 1971, and its reflection on the importance of education for justice. However, for the purposes of this paper, I want to focus on the way this document addresses the relationship between the just ordering of the church and its capacity to speak to the just ordering of society and politics. And I know you know paragraph 40, that key and very important paragraph, where it says... While the church is bound to give witness to justice, she recognizes that anyone who ventures to speak to people about justice must first be just in their eyes. Hence, we must undertake an examination of the modes of acting and of the possessions and lifestyle found within the church herself. So the witness of justice, it tells us, is dependent on our modes of acting, our modes of possessing, and our modes of living. Paragraph 47 raises the danger of ambiguous witness where the preservation of privilege needs to be tested against the norms of prophetic witness. Paragraph 48 calls for the examination of lifestyle, talking about sparingness, simplicity. The explicit commitment to the practice of justice in number 40 is followed by a reference to the preservation of the rights of people in the church. No one, it says, should be deprived of his or her ordinary rights because he or she is associated with the church in one way or another. 
and it refers to employees' rights, a greater role for lay people in the administration of the church, just procedures in a case of accusation, uh, the right to suitable freedom of expression and thought. Specific mention is made in paragraph 42 about women and their participation and the sharing of responsibility in the church. We urge that women should have their own share of responsibility and participation in the community life of society and likewise of the church. And as you know, there's much commentary on what, was, what they meant by their own share. The original first draft said equal share of responsibility and participation and that was then edited for fear it would be seen as an endorsement of the ordination of women. But it then goes on to offer, I think, an unresponded to but very practical suggestion for a mixed commission of men and women, religious and lay, of different differing situations and competences to address the serious issue of women in the church. And I think that's one very practical thing that, in fact, we could lobby for. And it could be bringing together, irrespective of one's views on that central symbolic issue of ordination. In 1971, these statements were recognised as a challenge to the prevailing perspectives and practices of the Vatican. However, the challenge of this document to the practice of justice ad intra is as powerful today as it was over 40 years ago. Firstly, the challenge about congruence between teaching about justice and the practice of justice. And I recognise that that's a personal challenge as much as it is an ecclesial challenge, a structural challenge. The reminder that rights must be preserved within the church. It's called for greater lay involvement in the administration of the church and the commission to role, examine the role of women in the church. The term credibility is used twice in the document. Firstly, as a reminder of the Christian message of love and justice and that it will only gain credibility uh, if it is effective through action. And secondly, it states that the credibility of the church will be diminished if it appears to be located primarily with the rich and powerful. Now, I think the bishops' gathering in 1971 could not have envisaged the diminishment of credibility that would ensue in the light of the child abuse crimes and scandals. While there are many signs of hope and life in the contemporary church, the extent of the diminishment of credibility makes attention to the just ordering of our household an imperative. And it is puzzling to me why so little attention has been paid to one document that could offer a starting point for such an endeavour. Given the directness with which this document addresses the practice of justice in the church, one can only wonder about its exclusion from the compendium. And I'd just like to add here as a reflection, to move on from the reflection last night on mercy. John Sabrino writes about mercy and the danger of reducing it to sentiment. You know, so mercy without a praxis to accompany it. And he challenges the church to consider itself to be decentered by mercy and its theology as intellectus misericordiae. Indeed, one could say perhaps the job of theology today is misericordia querens intellectum. The relationship between mercy and justice, of course, often brings out these tensions within the church over the priority of which, and I would just propose in the light of the 1971 document that we understand justice as structured mercy. I move on now to touch on a subject which to a large extent I've avoided in most of my academic life 
And that is, I have avoided suggesting that rights are a key issue in church reform. And I have not in my own work sufficiently brought rights discourse to the critique of religious practices. I believe, for example, we need a renewed theological anthropology in the church that takes cognizance of our deeper understanding of human sexuality. I believe there are no theological obstacles to the ordination of women, but I do not consider it a right. A rights-based approach is not the most appropriate way to address these contested theological issues. However, in my experience of working in the church in a number of different parts of the world, I have come to the conclusion that we cannot bypass a real examination of the ambivalence of the Catholic Church towards subjective rights and obligations internally. This is not intended to suggest that the answer to our problems lies in the imposition of the values of liberal democracy or that we best put our house in order by accommodating to secular conceptions of justice. When I am talking about rights, what do I mean? I don't consider that rights trump all other considerations in ethics. I define rights as a boundary discourse for the exploration of human flourishing. So it's, it's positioned in ethics for something more. It's a discourse that draws attention to suffering and sets the conditions and guidelines for the exercise of responsibility in response to the awareness of suffering. The discourse of rights provides guidelines for the exercise of responsibility with or on behalf of those who suffer. John Finnis argues that human rights emphasize equality, and I think he has the, one of the most beautiful definitions of equality. The truth that everyone, everyone, is a locus of human flourishing, which is to be considered for, with favor in him or her as much as in everyone else. And of course, we could take that theologically. Everyone is a locus of the imago Dei, of the Spirit of God, uh, to be considered with favor in him or her as much as in anyone else. Um, the full acceptance of human rights as a legitimate mode of ethical discourse was the major contribution of the Second Vatican Council. And this full acceptance was shaped by a number of factors, the most significant of which was the formal recognition of the right to religious freedom. So I'm just going to um, move over that in terms of the discussion of uh, dignitatis humanae. As you know, it, you know, that was so significant in terms of its acceptance of religious freedom, long accepted by other secular thoughts, allowed the church to fully embrace the notion of rights and to become a frontline to engage in frontline advocacy for rights in the world. John Courtney Murray, of course, says that the issue of religious freedom isn't the key issue, it's the, key, the issue of um, doctrinal development. And both, I think, are interesting points in terms of the, the future of the church. Um, Murray says it, the, it cleared up what uh, he saw as a long-standing ambiguity or double standard in the church. Freedom for the church when Catholics are in a minority privilege for the church and intolerance for others when they are in a majority. So the impact of this document was primarily on the church's engagement with rights ad extra. So I, I, did, I was looking at it again and saying, what could it say to us in terms of organizing ourselves ad intra? Firstly, the emphasis on the dignity of human discernment and decision making. Secondly, the recognition that the momentum of religious freedom moves from personal freedom to the freedom of the church, not vice versa. The concept of progress in understanding the truth. The recognition and acknowledgement by the church of self-contradictory positions in its own teaching. 
and the wonderful reflection on freedom which says that freedom is to be respected as far as possible and is not to be curtailed except when and insofar as necessary. And of course there is within the body of the church the language of rights in the code of canon law. I'm not a canonist and I bow to the, the, the experience of more scholarly canon lawyers here, um, Professor Miriam and others, but I have begun to look at the notion of rights in the canons and what in fact they might help us in, t- in the sense that they are already there and they offer grounds for some really constructive and practical work. The Christian, of course, does not stand before the church as the individual does before the state, but the rights and obligations of the faithful are found in canon law. Um, The codes outline the the rights and obligations in canons 208 to 223, and clearly some of these have no parallel in secular conventions. So, for example, the right to celebrate liturgy according to your own approved right, the duty to live a holy life, the freedom to choose your state in life. But... There are principles in canon law which closely reflect similar lists of rights. So, for example, the principle of equality in canon 208, the the right to freedom of expression of opinion in canon 212, and the right to a good reputation and to privacy also in canon 212. Um, I can tell the story without identifying um, the person. I worked on two different Episcopal conferences for justice and peace, uh, just drafting documents and then you'd send them to the bishops and get comments. And we were writing something to encourage people to get involved in the, the social teaching of the church, the expertise of lay people, etc., etc. And I referred to the principle of equality and it was sent to the bishops. And the draft was sent back to me, but someone had forgotten to move to track comments. And in my reference to principle of equality, there was a one saying... Um, a theological ideal, it might give people ideas. <laughs> and that is true. So uh, I thought that was the idea of it. Thus, it is clear that the church recognizes rights that are not directly related to divine law or directly related to the ecclesial context. And as I say, I'm not a canon lawyer, and the, I've been reading the work of the Belgian canonist Rick Torfs. And he argues that the code omits to put these rights in a framework that would have made them operationally relevant from a juridical perspective. So his question that he's asking is that are these canons and rights, are these rights and obligations in canons 208 to 223, are they superior to other canonical norms? Are they fundamental? If so, then the rights merely matter. If not, they're merely ornamental. Um, Now, the reason I began to look at that is I've done some reflection on the use of canon law, or the appeal to canon law, I should say, rather than the strict use by canonists in uh, the light of the various crises that we've dealt with. Torf makes the point that as well as this lack of framework for these rights to really operate in practice, there was a move, um, he says, um, in canon law in the decade after the promulgation of the 1983 code, a kind of theological turn. He says the theological beauty of canon law eventually eclipsed legal fairness. This theological turn, together with the vulnerability of subjective rights in canon law, were among the complex of factors that shaped the response to victims of child abuse, to unjustly accused priests, and to those charged with theological dissent, 
The same pattern, I think, is evident. An appeal to canon law, of course, should never, as it did in, in Ireland in one or two cases, should not take precedence over civil law where a crime has been committed. But what became clear is that um, there was a lack of clarity about the function of canon law and about the way these rights and obligations um, uh, operated practically. Um, many, some canonists like uh, Tom Doyle would look back and say it was clear the bishops should have known but I'm not sure that it is fair to say that uh, it was a simple case of episcopal non-enforcement of clear guidelines in canon law. So the basic question Rick Torfs asked is do these canons, these rights and obligations really become fundamental, that means cornerstones of the canonical system? The second paramount question he asks is, in the church, can it live with the rights of the individual or are they always eclipsed by the common good? And he makes a comparison between the limitations on freedom of expression, which always exist in codes of rights, between the European Convention on Human Rights and canon law. And his conclusion, and I'm giving it sort of very, in a very synthesized way, According to the European Convention, the common good is served by freedom of expression. According to Canon 213, Paragraph 3, 212, Paragraph 3, freedom of expression is only permissible when it serves the common good. So there's a fundamental difference there in how we understand that. Torps argues that human rights are not theologically dangerous and that there is a need to work systematically towards a culture of law in the church a culture in which basic rights have an eminent contribution to make. I would argue that rights are not just not dangerous, but positively greater attention to subject of rights internally can be fruitful for the development of the more that the church is called to, to communio and even kenosis. Human rights, the protection of subjective rights internally, can be fruitful for the church, enabling the dignity of the human person imago Dei to find expression in ecclesial structures and procedures. The Church has a very high theological anthropology in its advocacy of human rights in the world, a wonderful, profound, really empowering understanding of human dignity and of the need to concretize that dignity in history. Yet, this high and rich theological anthropology does not find the same expression when the Church discusses human dignity and human rights internally. There is a more reductive anthropology when the church engages with rights ad intra and what is operative is primarily a high ecclesiology. In the secular sphere, a human rights-based approach to organisational reform has shown potential to facilitate cultural change, especially in situations where there is an imbalance of power. And many of you may have used this work in hospitals or development agencies a rights-based approach enables duty bearers to meet their obligations and rights holders to claim their rights, all with the purpose, not just of claiming, but of engendering participation, accountability, non-discrimination, empowerment and legality. Marie Keenan, in her pretty devastating study of child abuse within the Catholic Church, concludes that the, system, that the mishandling of complaints by the church hierarchy was systemic, a system's failure of significant proportions over and above the responsibility of individual bishops, a failure of leadership and of the relational governance that went right to the top. 
While the church is not like any other secular organization, the systemic failures of recent years require a systemic approach to reform, and we can learn from approaches that maximize the capacity in organizations for participation, accountability, non-discrimination, empowerment, and legality. There is a real need in our world for a reciprocity of critique between secular and religious conceptions of justice, for example, on life issues. The continued failure of justice ad intra and the continuing ambivalence towards subjective rights lessens the capacity of our church for reciprocal critique. We have moved away from an understanding the church as a perfect society, although I know some people hanker for that still, but we also need to be aware that this model lurks maybe in all of us somewhere, in the form of reluctance towards moral proclamation, simply because of our failures and diminished credibility. We need to be attentive to ourselves as subject of evangelization, as having the gospel first proclaimed to us and responding then to that. We, the church, are the first addressee of our own moral proclamation, and our witness and practice should be repaired and refined by that proclamation. The document on poverty issued by Salem in the Median documents of 1968, probably one of the best treatments of a Christian theological understanding of poverty ever, outlines the three kinds. As we know, real poverty caused mainly by injustice, spiritual poverty, and poverty as solidarity with others in imitation of Christ. Spiritual poverty, certainly in the church in Ireland, and I've heard it in other parts of the world, is often referred to... um, a loss of faith or meaning which we see as characterised by movements of our time. But this is precisely not what was intended by the bishops of Medellin. Spiritual poverty in liberation theology is presented as the ability to welcome God, an openness to God, a willingness to be used by God, a humility before God. It is the disposition of the Anuin, and this is the disposition most needed by our church, as at this time as we face serious questions. Putting our house in order is an undertaking that is spiritual and structural, legal and theological. The answer does not lie in a simplistic choice between a fulsome, theologically rich ecclesiology and a human rights approach to ordering the house. And the issues I raised there are just pointers of things that might help us. The post-crisis urgency needs to be matched by an eschatological patience, mindful that the ordering of the house is ultimately God's task. The final words of the parable of the good housekeeper contain what I think are some of the most beautiful words in Luke's Gospel. There is joy in the presence of the angels of God when the lost is found. My prayer, my hope, is that we can find joy in and through the difficult task of putting our house in order. Thank you. Thank you, Ethna. So our next speaker needs no introduction, but he's going to get a brief one anyway. Timothy Ratcliffe is an award-winning theological writer and one of the most gifted communicators of faith of our times. His book, What is the Point of Being a Christian?, 
had a huge cultural impact and was justly awarded the Archbishop of Canterbury's Michael Ramsey Prize in 2007. Timothy has taught scripture in Oxford, has been master of his order and holds an Oxford DD. He's currently doing his best to live up to the mendicant character of his order by spending enormous amounts of time in the Middle East and North Africa. We're lucky to have pinned him down to at least three days <coughs> in the country. In his spare time, he is also the director of the Las Casas Institute at Blackfriars in Oxford, dealing with questions of justice, ethics and governance. So, Timothy, you are very welcome. First of all, I'm enormously grateful to be here. I found the whole conference extraordinarily stimulating. Time and again, I've said to myself, it was worth coming all the way to Durham just to hear that. I mean, none of us will ever be able to pray the rosary in the same way again, having heard that Hail Mary, full of grace, would be freely translated as Hello, beautiful. <laughs> And I thought that your paper was absolutely wonderful, uh, and I'm really grateful for it. Thank you. I received uh, Paul's email asking me to take Elizabeth Johnson's place recently when I was on a bus from Heathrow, coming back from Manila, and I succumbed to a combination of jet lag and Paul's honeyed flattery <laughs> and foolishly said yes. I was also intrigued by the title, Putting Our House in Order. It was obviously a quotation, but I couldn't think from where. First of all, I thought, oh, it must be Romeo and Juliet. Now, that's a plague on both your houses. And finally, I tracked it down. It occurs twice in the Bible, both referring to the same incident and the same words. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, put your house in order, for you shall die. You shall not recover. That's interesting. Putting your house in order is not about having a little spring clean. That me, it normally involves putting a few books back on the shelves. But actually what we see in the biblical context, it's about preparing to die. And this is a time we've seen in the life of the church for death and resurrection. As so often before, the body of Christ is dying. A one way of being church, so as to be reborn and renewed. So what sort of order do we need for this birth? Paradoxically, for Pope Francis, what we want is more disorder. He often likes to say, quiero lío, I like mess. Just before the World Youth Day in Rio, he said, Make a mess, he said. But then also help to tidy it up. A mess which gives us a free heart 
A mess which gives us solidarity. A mess which gives us hope. And then in Rio, after the downpouring of rain, he said, I expect a messy World Youth Day. I want things messy and stirred up. Pope Francis believes that the church has been too ordered, too disciplined, too controlled. Too much order is deadly. As one of uh, Samuel Beckett's characters says in Endgame, I love order. It's my dream. A world where all would be silent and still, and each thing in its last place, under the dust. This is this petrifying stability of which Stanley and Paul talked on that first evening. Francis is rebelling against what David Garland calls the culture of control. He frightens the tidy-minded. Now Charles Taylor has traced the evolution of this centralised state with this multiplication of laws and the incarceration of millions of people, above all in the United States. It cannot tolerate the turbulence and carnival of earlier societies. It leads to the suffocating blanket of health and safety. <laughs> and Taylor asserts that the disciplinary society, as he called it, is ultimately secular. Because it expresses a loss of confidence in God's providential care of the world. And the church is profoundly infected by this culture of control. Which the Pope believes is contrary to the unpredictable working of the Holy Spirit. He wrote in Evangelii Gaudium, There is no greater freedom than that of allowing oneself to be guided by the Holy Spirit, renouncing the attempt to plan and control everything to the last detail, and instead let him enlighten, guide and direct us, leading us where he wishes. The Holy Spirit hovered over the the formless chaos, the tohu wabohu, at the beginning. And we lead a little bit more mess if the spirit is to be created now. So decentralization is not just about giving bishops' conferences more authority and loosening the bonds of Rome. It's about freeing the whole community to be open to the stirring of the Holy Spirit. This is what prayer is for Francis. He said prayer is an act of freedom. Sometimes it emerges as an attempt at control, which is the same thing as wanting to control God. Now this raises fascinating questions. What will this decentralised church look like? What decision-making powers would bishops' conferences have? Does the Pope have a secret agenda? And I had a fascinating conversation with Paul Vallely. And he explained to me, I think very well, how the Pope both does and does not have a secret agenda. He wants to nudge the church in various ways. But at the same time, he wants to be surprised. And the Holy Spirit will reveal in the fullness of time what this church is to become. In a slightly obscure passage in the Evangelii Gaudium, he says, we must respect time rather than space. 
He said, this means initiating processes rather than possessing spaces. So when a Brazilian bishop raised the question of a married clergy, he said, well, we'll talk about it. And why not propose it? And then we'll discuss it. And we'll see where it goes. What matters is to set in motion unpredictable processes. During the, the Synod, a lot of bishops expressed nervousness about a lack of clarity of its mandate. Is it deliberative or just consultative? Should it prepare its own document or offer material for the Pope and let him prepare something? Why doesn't the Pope tell us what he wants? <laughs> My intuition is that the Pope is waiting to see where the Spirit leads us, but nudging us on the way. Now this transformation of the Church implies radical changes in its form of government, new structures, new procedures, a new disordering of our life. It implies all that Ethna said so absolutely wonderfully about um, uh, human rights ad intra. But it's interesting. John O'Malley described the Second Vatican Council as a language event. He wrote Liberty, Equality and Fraternity, as well as other formerly unwelcome guests, knocked at the door and gained entry at the feast. And Archbishop Mark Coleridge of Brisbane suggested that this is what was happening at the Synod too. It was a language event. There was an extremely interesting interview between Coleridge and Christopher Lamb in the tablet. I've got to put in a little plug, you know, for the tablet. <laughs> And this is what he reports. Coleridge said, I don't think we can any longer, talking about welcoming, welcoming gay people, I don't think we can any longer say we condemn the sin, but not the sinner, states the Archbishop. A person will say in the cultures that you and I come from that my sexuality isn't just part of me, it's part of my whole being. Therefore you can't isolate my sexuality by identifying it with this act that you call intrinsically disordered, that is somehow distinct or separate from me. To say this act is intrinsically disordered is now taken for granted to mean I am intrinsically disordered. And then Archbishop Kupic asked whether the word insoluble really works any longer because, he says, what it conveys is not the indissolubility of a wedding band, but handcuffs. So what's at issue is more, much more, than an inoffensive way of talking. It's about receiving from the Holy Spirit a new word of grace and truth. Grace and truth. In the Gospel, Jesus' enemies are always trying to put him on the spot. And either have a word of grace or one of truth. Should this woman be stoned to death because she was caught in adultery? Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus always escapes and produces a word of grace and truth because he is the word that is full of grace and truth. So we need words in which people will be able to recognise themselves, the truth of who they are, their longings, 
the joys and hopes and grief and anguish of the people of our time, as it was said in the words of Gaudium et Spes. Now in all of this, what is our role in putting our house in order or disorder? Our first task, every one of us, is to become holy, imaginative, responsible conversationists. Imaginative. I don't know whether you've noticed, but all the way through this conference, we've come back to the theme of imagination. Anna talked beautifully yesterday about a new kind of political imagination beyond the Manichaeism of uh, our society's discourse about the good and the bad, the commercialization of immigration. Father Arabata talked reimagining the community in a way that includes the whole globe. Tina, as one might have expected, talked about reimagining the family. Miriam Weiland talked about how we talk together in new ways. And Eamon said something extremely illuminating last night about, about imagination, but I'm afraid I couldn't read my handwriting this morning, Eamon. <laughs> it's about the church being moved by a new form of conversation, replacing monologue with dialogue. The American Franciscan Michael Crosby says we have to move from a monarchical to a Trinitarian model of the church. Monarchy begins with the oneness of God. Trinity puts relationship at its core. Francis said on October the 17th, a synodal church is a church who listens, aware that listening is more than hearing. It's a process of mutual listening in which each person has something to learn. The faithful, the Episcopal College, the Bishop of Rome, each one listening to the others, and all listening to the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Truth. Now the boiler room, I think, of Francis's government of the church is the C9, a group which exists for conversation. And the synod is supposed to become less of a tedious occasion of set speeches, all prepared beforehand and read out mercilessly. <laughs> I hope to have time off in purgatory having endured three synods. <laughs> Francis, and actually Benedict before him, wanted the synods to be more places of real conversation, which means unpredictable conversation. No true conversation can be controlled if it is to be alive. It's interesting that the wounding investigation of the leadership of the American religious women was closed by an hour-long free conversation with the Pope. So we have to look about how we talk. We have to look at our vocabulary. Often people refer to the official church. I don't think there's, anything, there's such thing as the official church. There's just the church. And we're all members of it, and we all have a part in its conversations. To, to refer to the official church is to embrace a position on the edge. It's a sort of inverted clericalism. I believe we have to rigorously refuse 
the polarizing categories of left and right. The culture wars in the United States have produced terrible words of contempt and abuse on both sides. And they extinguish the possibility of words of grace and truth. The radical opposition of conservative and progressive is utterly alien to a Catholic conversation. So we need a new heart, a heart of flesh, in which we learn how to cherish what other people find important. Whether it's the, I don't know, the Tridentine rite, or why St. Dominic was indeed a wonderful man of mercy. Because we all always speak as members of the church with the authority and the responsibility that that implies. The International Theological Commission has a, in a wonderful document called Theology Today has a tentative recognition that theologians have indeed, as Aquinas argued, their own magisterium. But we have to recognise that we're all learners and we're all teachers. Sister Margaret Farley wrote a book called Just Love in which she proposed a sexual ethic which differs from the church's official teaching. Now it might be a wonderful book for all I know, but I was a little uneasy with her defence when she said, in the end, I can only clarify that the book was not intended to be an expression of current official Catholic teaching, nor was it specifically aimed against this teaching. It's a different genre altogether. And Lisa Cahill of Boston added, Theologians do not see or present their work as official church teaching, and few of the faithful are confused by this fact. Well, I sort of see what she means. But I would be really unhappy if a great gulf were to open up between what counted as official church teaching and our teaching. Our beloved Eamon Duffy, in fact, wrote, Catholic teaching takes many different forms. A mother teaching her children their prayers, a catechist preparing young people for the sacraments, a parish Bible study discussing the Gospels, sermons, lectures, discussions in a seminary, adult education classes, religious books and articles, pastoral letters, conciliar documents, papal encyclicals. Some of this is more or less important but all constitute Catholic teaching. And all involved in such activities are teachers sharing the prophetic role of Christ. So we all need to claim that beautiful word, orthodox. Orthodox doesn't mean a slavish repetition of official documents. That's what Karl Rahner called the heresy of dead orthodoxy. It's the wide open space of our shared faith in the mystery. So we need disordering, unpredictable conversations with those with whom we disagree, opening our hearts and minds to what they hold dear, giving the most charitable interpretation of what they say, and just in our account of their position. No more abusive references, please, to the temple police. This will require some ways of dying to how we have spoken, which don't build up the body of Christ. And I think 
in the General Council of the Order, we had only one rule in our discussions, that another's position is never to be considered as absurd, ridiculous, nonsensical. That is to squash your brother or your sister. And I think, obviously, there's one area of conversation which seems to have got stuck, which we referred to last night, and that's the role of women in the church. And Pope Francis, as you know, has repeatedly asserted he wants women to play a full part in the life of mission and decision-making of the church, but he excludes the ordination of women. And I was really immensely grateful to Eamon for his uh, remarks yesterday, which I found, they were words of grace and truth, which were deeply liberating for us, I think, and how really helped to, us to find a way forward. What can we do now? Is there any hope at this moment? There's an intriguing comment in paragraph 104 of Evangelii Gaudium, where the Pope says, confining priestly ordination to men, I quote, can prove especially divisive if sacramental power is too closely identified with power in general. What the Pope seems to be saying is that in recent years, really I think that I'm not a kind of lawyer, but the last code, we've made a much closer bond between authority and jurisdiction of the church and ordination. More close than it used to be the case. And that's what has to be loosened uh, as a first step if women are to have a real role in exercising jurisdiction and authority in the church. Finally, how can the laity in general, women in particular, have an authority and a voice in these conversations? I think we need to be institutionally creative. Another phrase that I find profoundly unhelpful is the institutional church. In recent centuries, many institutions in the church have tended to shrivel under the spreading canopy of one, the hierarchy, just as the state has come to suffocate other institutions in our national life. But Mary Douglas, the great uh, anthropologist, shown that a society only flourishes if there are counterbalancing, complementary institutions which give voice and authority to different people in any community. And the Catholic Church historically has been extraordinarily inventive of new institutions, from monasticism, the friars, even to the Jesuits. <laughs> I make no comment. <laughs> From universities and guilds, Lash, St. Egidio, Cafod, the Tablet, they're all institutions. So we cannot talk of the institutional church. And we need more institutions which give diverse voices authority in our house and which sow a bit of disorder. And then our conversations will be creative and animated by the Holy Spirit. And we shall hand on, not the ashes, but the glow. Thank you very much.